it was amazing. It, like as soon as, as soon as those deer hit 85 degrees Fahrenheit, they start seeking out higher quality shade. There's something about that threshold where below 85 degrees doesn't really matter. But that was a big takeaway for me. It's like, what is it about that 85 degree threshold that, that makes these deer seek out better quality shade? Hey guys, welcome to the National Deer Association's Deer Season 365 podcast. I'm your host, Brian Grossman, and it's been miserably hot here in the South and and really across much of the country, I guess, for quite a while. So what better time to get our friend Zach Vakurovich on to discuss summer thermal cover, as well as ways that you can recover from summer food plot failure uh, both very timely and, and relatable topics right now. Uh, Zach's a wildlife biologist who owns Whetstone Habitat. He's a repeat guest on our podcast, and he's written uh, numerous articles for NDA over the last few years. So it's good to have him back on. I know you guys are going to enjoy that conversation. Uh, before we get on the phone with Zach, though, I do need to mention that this episode of the Deer Season 365 podcast is brought to you by our friends at OnX. Uh, Onyx is definitely my go-to app for scouting hunting properties, and they just keep on improving on what is already a great product by adding new features and and updating the imagery on a regular basis. Uh, We've worked closely with them to help develop the CWD layer that's available inside of the app. So you can always know whether the area you're hunting in is a CWD zone or not. Uh, So if you're not currently an Onyx user and you want to give it a try, or if you are an Onyx user and, and your membership will be expiring here soon, uh, you can use the promo code NDA. And not only will you save 20% off of the app or off of the subscription, uh, but Onyx will make a small donation back to the NDA as well. So again, please use that promo code NDA when you sign up for your Onyx membership. And speaking of Onyx, they're actually hosting a masterclass called the NDA Deer Steward Live Deer Biology and Behavior. And this is a a free uh, webinar where NDA staff will discuss, you know, why deer do what they do and and when they do it, uh, breaking down some of the myths and misunderstandings of white-tailed deer to help you gain a deeper knowledge of America's most popular big game animal. And that's going to take place next Tuesday, August 15th, at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, so you can learn more about that and get registered today. Again, it's a free course at DeerAssociation.com slash events and look for that link to the Onyx Masterclass. And one more thing before we jump on the phone with Zach, uh, the NDA has completely restructured our membership levels. And for the first time ever, we now offer a free basic membership. So, and there's absolutely no reason not to be a member of the National Deer Association now. Uh, there's strength in numbers, and we want you on board with us. Uh, the free membership includes receiving our weekly newsletter that's always packed with all the latest deer hunting and deer management information. Uh, it makes you eligible for our regular member prize drawings. Like right now, we're giving away an HHA bow site, and we'll be actually drawing a winner for that next week on August 15th. Uh, And you'll receive important local action alerts uh, regarding deer policy and regulations in your state, as well as any upcoming NDA events in your area. Uh, And again, this is all completely free to you. Uh, All you got to do is head to our website at DeerAssociation.com and look for that join link at the very top. Make sure you're signed up as a at least a free basic member. If you'd like to further support the NDA, of course, we do have a premium membership that for a limited time is just $35. It includes all the benefits, of course, of the basic membership. Plus, it it also includes discounts on gear from NDA sponsors and partners. So, man, all it would take is one discount on a hunting hunting item that you already need and and you're planning on buying, and you're going to recoup that $35 membership fee. Uh, We'll throw in an NDA hat and decal for any new premium members as well as entry into our regular premium membership drawings. Uh, And for the first one of those, again, we'll be giving this away next week. It's going to be a pair of Vortex binoculars 
and an Alps Outdoors binocular harness to go with it. Uh, and premium members are also eligible for the basic membership drawing. So if, if you do decide to become a premium member, not only will you be eligible for those Vortex binoculars, uh, but you'll also be in the drawing for the HHA both site as well. So again, you can head over to our website, deerassociation.com slash join, and make sure you sign up as an NDA member today. And with that, guys, we're going to jump on the phone with Zach Vakurevich to talk about summer food plot failure and some summer thermal cover. So uh, stick around for that. Well, hey, Zach, welcome back once again to the, the Deer Season 365 podcast. I appreciate you taking time out of uh, of your busy schedule to hop on here once again and and talk some some habitat and food plot stuff with us. It's uh, always a, a popular topic with our crowd, so and uh, I always enjoy talking about it myself. So I'm looking looking forward to the conversation. Awesome, pleasure to be here. Always always <laughs> enjoy being on this show. Yeah, so I know I know you've been obviously very busy. So how's the how's the habitat consulting going? It's going great. I've been staying busy, moving around. I kind of the whole the whole dream of mine when I moved to Nashville was uh, to start getting some more local clients, and I uh, I've been picking up some more and more Tennessee clients. So I, I still love traveling all around the country, doing what I do, and I'm I'm still making making my rounds all over all over the Whitetails range. But um, a part of the reason for my uh, moving here was to try to stay busy and. and Middle Tennessee. There's a lot of a lot of people deer hunting around here. A lot of people managing for for whitetail. So it's been been really good. It's finally paying off. You know, it's been taking about eighteen months, but finally starting to get get a foothold here in the mid south. Well, good deal. You moved to Nashville. You wasn't you're not trying to kick off a country music career, are you? <laughs> <laughs> no, I can't. I can't. I can. I can mess around on the guitar, but as soon as somebody asks me to start singing, I, I kind of clam up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm right. I'm right there with you on that. Yeah, yeah. Good deal. <laughs> oh man. But yeah, one one reason I, I wanted to get you on here again is was because of the the hot weather we've been having, you know, br- oh, brutally hot in, in some parts hot. of the country. And it uh it kind of it reminded me of an article you did for us about this time last year um for the magazine and and on our website, but it's it's about summer thermal cover. And I think, you know, a lot of deer hunters and land managers they understand the need for thermal cover to protect deer from harsh winter conditions. But, you know, I think most of us probably overlook the need for protection during, during these, you know, dog days of summer. So I guess if if you can just kick things off by talking a little bit about, you know, what, what is summer thermal cover and and why is it important? I, I think you hit the nail on the head there when, when talking about people, people think about thermal cover for whitetail and immediately they, they jump to, you know, deer yards up in up in the North woods or out in Minnesota, you know, they're all worried about uh, keeping those deer warm in the wintertime. But when you're looking at the physiology of that animal and you're, you're realizing like, you know, it's the same thing during the summertime, you take your dog for a walk and you might make it out at 10 AM. And by the time you, you make it around the block, he's huffing and puffing and drool <laughs> coming out of his mouth and panting and in deer the same way, you know, they can't sweat like, like most mammals, you know, we're lucky. We can sweat. We can expel that, that moisture and, you know, keep wicking heat away from us deer. <laughs> they, they don't have that luxury. It's great during the wintertime, kind of the way that their, their system works where, you know, they maintain heat very well. So it helps get them through those winter months, but during the summertime, you know, it's, people aren't thinking about it. This is, you're right. People are, we get hot, we go to the lake and, you know, we, we grab the wakeboard, we cool off that way. So I, I was at the Southeast Deer, attending the Southeast Deer Study Group, and I heard a heard a talk by a researcher Jacob Dykes talking about his research on 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 summer heat and and how those those high temperatures are affecting your deer herd, and it, it makes complete sense. A lot of a lot of the initial data for this comes as with most things in in the whitetail world, it all starts with agriculture. So they started looking at production of of uh, cattle and how the heat, you know, benefits or detriments the, the growth of those cows. Well, they, they started ap- applying that type of research to, to whitetails. And what, what Jacob was able to do was he, he put these, he put these deer in these pens and he had different shade cloths over different sections of the, 
of the pen. So these deer are in an enclosure and depending on where they were standing in that enclosure, the entire, the entire enclosure was, was on camera 24 seven. So depending on where that deer was in the enclosure, he was either under, you know, a light shade. There's varying degrees of how much light penetration was getting through those shade tarps. So what he was trying to figure out was at what point will that deer start changing his behavior due to the temperatures and the availability of, of not just shade, but different qualities of shade. So it was, it was fascinating research and it was a very, you know, kind of simple, simple experiment, but you know, the data speaks for itself. It, it, it was amazing. It, like as soon as, as soon as those deer hit 85 degrees Fahrenheit, they start seeking out higher quality shade. There's something about that threshold where below 85 degrees doesn't really matter, but that, that was a big takeaway for me. It's like, what is it about the 85 degree threshold that, that makes these deer seek out better quality shade? And then it got me thinking about, well, what can we be doing as land managers to promote these, these shady spots? You know, not all shade is created equal. And I'd love to get, kind of get into that and, and, and talk about what I mean by that. Um, do you have any questions about the experiment? No, it's, it's, that's just fascinating. Even, even from a, a hunting standpoint, you know, it kind of makes you think that, you know, on, on the day, cause obviously a lot of seasons now start when it's still plenty hot outside, particularly here in the, in the South, you know, it can be over 85 for uh, a good bit of the early season. And so, you know, I'm just kind of, the wheels are spinning in my head thinking, well, that, you know, that could completely change up the deer behavior from a hunt, you know, above that 85 degree threshold compared to a hunt below. So that's, that's, yeah, those, those early seasons, if, if you know you have a few spots on your property that, that you have some good quality, you know, north facing hillsides that, that those deer are, are hunkering down on during those warm days, absolutely. You, you can kind of narrow down the same way you do in the wintertime where, you know, they're coming off that, that one south facing hillside you love so much, you know, just reverse that for those early warm season days. It's uh, absolutely. And then you start getting into, you know, how, how can I improve these areas? And you can just go down the rabbit hole real quick. It's it, deer management. It's not just about, it's not just about hunting season. As much as we love sitting in that tree stand and it all pays off at the end of the day, it's like you started out the podcast, say it's, it's 365 days a year. You know, I was, right. I was telling you before we started recording, I, I spent the better part of a day the other day, hand pulling Johnson grass in the, the 92 degree heat in Southern Kentucky. It was absolutely miserable. And the whole time I was out there, I was, I jumped a few fawns out of my warm season grasses and I'm just thinking they got to be miserable. You know, like it's, you just have to deal with it. So, so figuring out what the, what the cost is to these deer just to stay cool. You know, as soon as you start figuring out a deer is changing his behavior, uh, to, to focus on higher quality shade, you, you got to know their metabolism plays a great role in um, keeping them cool. And everything, everything a deer does is, is based on saving energy, you know, and staying safe. So when you kind of boil it down to the nuts and bolts of what that deer's doing and why he's seeking it out, it makes complete sense. It's, it's just more of a, a fallacy on the, the land manager's behalf. Just, we just haven't been paying attention to it. You know, a big part of my management plans when I'm working with clients all over the country is minimizing stress. I, I can't emphasize it enough. And I write about it all the time that that is, that's the one variable that's going to dictate, you know, whether a deer can reach his genetic potential that people don't, think about you know whether it's social stress or temperature induced stress minimizing as much stress as you can on those animals especially during the heat of summer while they're in velvet will promote better antler growth um by the time they go hard horned yeah so i guess let's let's dive into you know what what makes good summer thermal cover so the, the big one that i think most pe- people miss is the airflow factor so if I could stand under a 40% shade tarp where it's blocking 40% of that sunlight, but you have a fan in front of you where you could stand under 80% shade with no fan, I, I, I don't know, but I might, I might stand in front of that fan, you know, just getting some airflow. So looking at stuff like I, I know people, especially in the North, anytime I work in New York, I talk about how much I love sumac because it's everywhere up there. <laughs> it's like, you like that stuff? And I'm like, oh, it's great. <laughs> You've ever walked through a sumac patch in the wintertime and seen how much browsing is occurring on there or, or in the summertime, walk through it and, and just look at the deer beds in those little sumac 
tickets. It's it's a really cool plant. They they grow so people aren't familiar with sumac. There's a couple different varieties of them. Staghorn's a very common one. Rough sumac. They they grow in little colonies, so they'll send out little shoots and and they'll kind of sucker out, but when you're looking, when you're driving past an old pasture that's been fallow and you see those sumac patches out there, it almost looks like a little bubble in the middle of the field where you got these long, skinny trees where it's just a single trunk. And the middle ones are kind of vertical, but the ones on the outside of, of that bubble of, of trees, they're so long and skinny, they start to sag and hang out. They don't have help. help their neighbors aren't keeping them upright. So it kind of makes this cool dome-shaped structure out in the middle of the field. It blocks a lot of the sunlight from above, but because those sumac trees are, are single-stemmed and they're, they're so thin, you get a good amount of airflow through there, especially during the summertime. So stuff like that, just paying attention to where you're jumping deer out of when, you, when you're on the tractor. Or, you know, it might be, there's been a couple times on consults where I'll be, we'll be driving and there'll be an old dilapidated building I'll jump deer out of multiple times, you know, out of, out of old barns that have fallen down. Um, Start paying attention to that stuff. You know, if you're seeing, if you're jumping deer out of a weird spot, don't just chalk it up to, to, you know, a, a silly behavior by that deer. You know, there's a reason he's, he's bedded down in that old broken down barn. He's, he's trying to get higher quality shade. He's trying to, trying to reduce the amount of energy it takes to pant and cool himself off. So looking at it from a management perspective, there's, you know, like I said, if, if you're dealing with flatlands and a lot of open grounds and you can't really deal with, you, you don't have that aspect, you can't, you say you don't have any north facing hillsides on you. you you might be in minnesota where it's all flat you know you can't rely on north facing hillside to promote that shape you have to rely on vegetation vegetative cutter cover to, to to provide that that shade for those deer so so looking at different types of plant communities are going to allow good airflow and allow some some good good sunlight protection um overhead um same thing I was talking about north facing hillsides earlier. You go up to a north facing hillside and it, you're kind of in a tricky spot here. This is where people get tied up a little bit because they're they're trying to maintain shade quality, right? And and so often we're taught, you know, the closed canopy forest is awful. You know, you're managing for deer. Why well, <laughs> there's there's no sunlight hitting the ground out here. Well, when you're talking about summer thermal cover, you don't really necessarily want to increase the amount of sunlight hitting the ground. So when talking about doing improvements on, on a north facing hillside, I'd say go in there, especially if it's a mature woodlot, get in there and just look at that mid story. Start making some brush piles with that mid story. Give them some structure to bed up against while you're still maintaining those those mature canopy trees over top. So again, it's it's very low input, but but you can go in there and one day make a couple brush piles on on, on a north or a west facing hillside and uh Underneath the dominant canopy, like I said, you don't want to be opening up that canopy. Can you hear me? Yeah, you you cut out there for a second. So like I was saying, it, it it's a relatively low amount of input as far as improving the, the bedding locations on a north-facing hillside like that. But all you're doing is getting in there and you're hinging those mid-story trees or cutting them down and piling them up and just giving them some structure to bed, bed up against. You know, you're not doing it to open the canopy. You're doing it to create, you know, horizontal structure at ground level. Yeah, and that's that's interesting on the sumac. I've, I've always been, in fact, I shot a video not long ago, a little YouTube short of where I had some sumac growing here in in my yard, and uh, always been a big fan. You know, the birds, of course, love the berries on there, and and those berries will will persist into winter. Uh, and, mm -hmm. and for and for whatever reason, uh, I've always the bucks. I've always noticed that bucks seem to love to rub those sumacs. But uh, yeah, I never thought about the the benefits of the the shade part of it. So. That's that's an interesting, interesting yeah. take. Just more more reason to uh, like sumacs. So. Yeah, like sumacs and, and to just start learning your native plant communities. I mean, if, if you look at like elderberry can grow in some similar little patches like that um, as well. So just getting familiar with some of your shrubs and stuff that, that do well in your area and kind of kind of basing if you're placing some tree orders or anything like that or like in my neighborhood, I got I got a stand of, of native warm season grasses. It's about a quarter acre field. And I, I would like to see some more sumac down there. I don't have a ton of it down in the bottom where I'm at in Kentucky, but in my neighborhood here in, in Nashville, the walking trail is absolutely loaded with those seed heads on those. It's just sumac everywhere and there's seed heads everywhere. And I'm like, I'm, I'm honestly debating clipping a few of those, uh, 
seed heads off the top and taking them out this winter and kind of <laughs> sprinkling, <laughs> sprinkling them around to try to get a few of those established in, in my warm season grasses. So I'm, I'm yeah. not enrolled in any sort of uh, programs that that would, that would not be allowed. So it's, it'd be good. It's again, playing with natives and figuring out which plant communities are, are going to best represent what those deer need in your area. It's going to, it's going to be so important. And, and I always, I always harp on my clients, you know, get a good field guide, get what, there's so many good apps now for, for learning the native vegetation in your area. Just start to familiarize yourself with it. So that when you're doing these types of habitat techniques, there's, there's not that pause. Um, in or regret after you cut the wrong thing down (laughs) now now you you mentioned i think uh minnesota there a minute ago so is this i mean it's obviously it sounds like it's not necessarily a regional thing i mean obviously i could see a huge benefit where i'm at here in in georgia uh, and it gets you know obviously very very hot for long periods of time but i mean Mm -hmm. is this something you recommend pretty much across the the whitetail range yeah i mean there's there's some areas where you get into some, some elevation there's some spots in like southern west virginia that have the elevation um that that some deer can escape to when it starts getting too hot but for the most part a lot of the whitetails range you know even out in minnesota or like western new york there's um they still get hot you know there's still droughts in minnesota it's still 100 degrees in the summertime you know, yeah, the, the winters are, are exponentially worse than they're at where you're at in Georgia, but the summer times can be, you know, dang near as miserable up there. So I, I, it's something I would be aware of. And again, like I said, if you're in a place that's flat and you can't rely on the topography to provide some of this cover that these deer need, you're going to have to do it, do it the old fashioned way with mother nature and, and learn which plant communities you can use to, to your benefit out there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I guess, I mean, in a lot of cases, it's just a matter of kind of what you've touched on there. It's just getting out and, and knowing your property because it, it may be something you already have or, uh, you know, something that would just take a, a few small tweaks to develop versus, you know, other areas where you might be starting from scratch. So, well, the perfect thing is like old field people managing for old fields. What, what do they do? They wait until if. If they're managing with fire, a lot of times they'll wait until conditions are right and they'll run a, a, a growing season fire through to kill off the, the woodies in there. Well, or if they're not managing with fire, they're managing with a brush hog and they're waiting until the woodies start to establish and they'll get in there and they'll, they'll knock it back with the brush hog. It just split the field in half maybe maybe you change the you know your disturbance return interval a little bit you can give those woody plants a chance to establish give them a little bit more freedom to to take hold and, and get some some roots under them and, and provide that habitat i think so often we, we get it in our head that this field i want it to be this way and this is the way it, it should look you know it's <laughs> starting to look different i need to get in there and set it back you know that's that's not always you know it's, i think it's good we're constantly you know it's good to critique yourself and reevaluate and, and try things different. You know, like I was saying earlier, changing from a two year fire return interval to a four year fire return interval, you're going to completely transform the way that that old field looks. It's going to go from, from strictly annuals and perennials and you're going to start to get some brambles and, and some, some box elders and some of those pioneering trees starting to establish in there, you know, and it's, it's a matter of not doing anything you're doing less work and you can promote those types of habitats that you need on the landscape. So just getting a, a general understanding of, of, of the progression that those plant communities, especially those early successional ones, you know, you, depending on where you're at in the country, your timing is everything for setting those back, those old fields back as far as getting the habitat type that's going to best benefit your deer herd on the landscape. So, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the one thing about, habitat work is uh, there, there is no finish line <laughs> it's it's yeah <laughs> constant. i mean you know it's something something you're constantly going to be uh monitoring and, and maintaining uh over over the course of your life if you want to if you want to keep it you know a high quality habitat yeah ex- exactly and and i think people get the misconception that when you when you start dealing you know i i love there's a few trends in the, in the hunting world that i in the whitetail world specifically that i really enjoy seeing and one of the ones that i'm that i'm taking note of here the last, you know, four or five years or so has been the light bulb going off in, in landowners heads on how important these, these native plant communities are in, in managing a healthy deer herd. You know, these, these whitetail, there's absolute giants running around for millions of years. I'm sure, you know, you go back to pre-European contact and I'm sure 
they were going out on the plains and killing all kinds of huge whitetail back in the day. But, you know, times have changed. And in just trying to get, you know, there's invasive species that they weren't dealing with back then. The land use is completely different than back then. The hunting pressure is completely different than back then. So figuring out a way to get back to kind of what things were back back before all of all of these uh, advancements and breaking up these properties into smaller and smaller parcels and you know the mismanagement of current communities is what's shooting people in the foot so getting out there and like i'm a stickler for for killing invasives and making room for our, our, our native vegetation out there to take hold but this is why we do it you know it's it's these deer have evolved to to take advantage of these native plant communities so just the simple act of, of familiarizing yourself you know you're going out you're walking the field edge and, and notice deer have been browsing on something take your phone out take a picture of it figure out what that is kind of off topic from the from the heat refuge stuff but something i'm passionate about is you know learn learn the plants in your area it's and then you can look like you can look like the guru next time you have someone out to the property showing <laughs> off all the cool flowers, you know. Yeah, that, that's that's been one of the coolest things about you know owning owning a little piece of property for me is just you know getting out and 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 looking at that kind of stuff and taking notice, you know, just like you said of what what the deer are eating on your place, and you know sometimes. I'm like, well, you know, that's not that's not really supposed to be a, a preferred food choice for deer, but for some reason, you know, they're they're hammering those, and mm-hmm. so it, yeah, it's it's interesting, and and they love they love some ornamentals too. So you you find that out quick when you start, <laughs> <laughs> you start trying to plant some flowers around the yard. So. I, uh, I like to joke that my neighborhood here in Nashville is so inhospitable to wildlife that you can grow hostas. Because in when I was living in Cincinnati, everyone would complain nobody can grow hostas. The deer absolutely smash them. It's that's so funny that you mentioned that because my my in laws live live right here by me. Um, I mean, I can just about see their house from where I'm at, and uh, you know, we got obviously got got deer around us, got deer here on my property, but but they've started getting a little braver, and my my in laws have been seeing. <laughs> more in the yard uh, they got you know motion sensors so the light will come on at night and they'll look out there and uh-huh. there'll be a deer feeding in your yard and that you know they just <laughs> love that they've they've been eating it up and then they came down came down for dinner yesterday and she was telling me that uh the deer came up and ate all her hostas yeah so, her hostas are gone <laughs> yep, yep they're gone so now she's not loving the deer as much yeah, maybe you should get her a paintball gun for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Teach that double lesson. Oh man, yeah, but that that was that was funny. Yeah, they they got my hibiscus, but yeah, they ate her hostas up. So, <laughs> yeah, they're not stupid. It's I mean, it's the same thing, kind of similar here. I know we're getting off track, but it's like I can't tell you how many times people come up to me and they find out what I'm doing. I can't. The the oak tree in my front yard, the deer love that. So like they go so far out of their way to come eat at this one oak. It, it, it's like I'm sitting there as a biologist and I'm thinking about, like I said earlier, everything that deer does is about, you know, the, the cost of what he's doing. You know, what energetic <laughs> input is it going to like, am I going to be better off after this act, whatever it is. You know, eating acorns out of a manicured mowed lawn is a heck of a lot easier than trying to dig them out of the leaves rolling down the hillside. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. I, I think it's more a product of how easy that, that oak tree in your front yard is for them as opposed to the actual quality of the acorn falling off of it. Yeah, yeah that makes a lot of sense. Well, the same can be applied to, you know, walking dried up creek bottoms when the acorns have fallen. Yeah, that's a, people don't think about that, but those acorns fall into that creek and pile up, and it's pretty easy, pretty easy ambush spot if you can find an area where those acorns like to settle. Yeah, there's yeah. a there's a hot tip for you. <laughs> there you go, hunters out there. <laughs> there you go. Well, good deal. Anything else? I guess regarding summer thermal cover that we that we haven't touched on yet. The only last thing I wanted to touch on was don't be afraid to don't be afraid to experiment. Like I was saying with the, with changing up your, your fire return interval or, or not brush hog in that field. Once you start getting some trees establishing in there, you know, just kind of figuring out what works, what, what fits with your schedule as far as how much time you have as a land manager. You know, a lot of people get too stressed out. They get to come up with the schedule. I gotta be here. I gotta be here. I gotta be here. Look, I got clients. I got one guy I was talking to yesterday. He's, he lives in Florida and his properties in South central Illinois. He he's got to time his his trips 
accordingly. You know, it's not like he can just stop by the farm anytime that the weather's right to be able to do stuff. So his entire management plan that I wrote for him is, is all, you know, a majority of it, you did a lot of, there's a lot of CRP, in there, but there's also a lot, you know, it's all, instead of food pots, we're, do, we're planting fire breaks. We're doing a lot of edge feathering. We're, we're doing as much as we can to give him the freedom to kind of be that absentee landowner. And he's going to have a lot of flexibility as far as, you know, when he can return and, and, and focus on, on doing those thermal cuts or doing those bedding thicket cuts, you know, just, just not being afraid to experiment and try things out, document how they go. You know, if you, you leave a, leave a sumac patch somewhere, stick a trail camera in it, see if the deer are using it, you know, or you make a, you make an improvement on a North facing hillside, always try to validate that, uh, that your investments are paying off as you go. So don't be afraid to experiment, but keep track of uh, the results as you go. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good tip. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a good thing about habitat work is I guess short of going in and clear cutting an entire, you know, mature forest, there, there's not a lot you can do that, that won't, you know, eventually correct itself. <laughs> yeah. It's gonna, yeah. It might take a little time, but <laughs> yeah. yeah. Good deal. Well, now another issue that all this, this hot and dry weather has created is, uh, you know, kind of some depleted deer forage, uh, particularly when it comes to, to food plots and, uh, I was talking with you about this the other day. You brought it up as a, a potential talking point because of, you know, what you've been hearing and, and seeing uh, while out in the field and, and working with clients. So ha- I guess, you know, how, how has it been out there? What are you seeing out in the field as far as I mean, uh, as far as <laughs> deer forage and food plots? I've been receiving a lot of phone calls about uh, food plot failures, um, specifically soybeans this year for some reason. And and where I'm at in South Central Kentucky, I planted three separate fields for with forage soybeans, and they just I, I'm chalking it up to to weather. You know, I I had my soil test, got them done last year. Or, made amendments this year, got them all planted. There was a good rain event right after I planted my fields. They came up, they germinated fine. They came up and then we just hit, I don't know, six, seven, eight weeks of absolutely no rainfall. And the soybeans, they they weren't terminated at the time. The weeds started to establish. I couldn't make it out there. I was going off of, uh, my dad was sending me pictures asking, you know, should I spray it? You know, what's going on with this field? And I told him to spray. The problem was a lot of people don't realize this when it's hot and dry and those plants are kind of, you know, beginning to senesce and look wilty, that herbicide's not going to take very well. Those, those, especially Roundup, they, they have to be actively photosynthesizing. Um, and those plants are pretty much in survival mode. So that herbicide didn't take real well. By the time I made it back to the farm this, this the other or a couple of days ago, it's like, yeah, I'd call it two of the three fields I'd consider a catastrophic food plot failure. Um, with the last one might be a little salvageable, but I've had multiple phone calls from, from other people. You know, some of them are nearby. One of them was a neighbor in, in down the road in Kentucky, but another one was a, was a client of mine down in, outside of Memphis. But then I had somebody in Pennsylvania reach out and it, it, I don't know what was going on. I haven't received phone calls like this in the past for, for food pot failure. So I, I figured it'd be a pertinent topic because I've walked so many of my clients through kind of my recommendations on how to approach it moving forward and um, figured I can kind of chime in on, on what I'm doing with, with my place moving forward. But I think first and foremost, the most important thing for anybody dealing with a food plot failure, if it's a spring, uh, you know, a summer food plot or a fall food plot, whatever it may be, you have to figure out what went wrong. So I, I, I think that alone um, can, can, kind of narrow you down as far as where to go moving forward because the last thing that you want is for the same thing to happen again you know food plots are an expensive investment take a lot of time a lot of money um so the failure is like it's awful it sucks there's no other way to put it you know i was extremely disheartened with the performance of the beans this year but i i can't make it rain you know yeah i I could maybe buy a no-till drill if i had an extra 20 grand laying around and, and hope for some better, you know, moisture retention that way. But, you know, I did everything that I could to, to the best of my ability and it just didn't pan out. So here we are moving forward. It's, it's time to get a new game plan together. Yeah. 
Well, I guess, you know, walk us, walk us through with those, <laughs> what kind of recommendations you're, you're giving to folks or, or that you're taking yourself uh, that are experiencing this type of, of food plot failure, because, you know, obviously we can't, can't control the weather and uh, very, very few of us food plotters out there are, are set up to be able to, to irrigate their plot. So yeah. what, what kind of <laughs> options do we have? So as, like I said, the first thing you're going to want to do is try to figure out what happened, you know, what's going on for me. I'm chalking it up to, you know, just bad luck with the weather. Can't control the rain. Um, if I was down there and could have been a little more, um, if I was closer to the farm, could you know, maybe, maybe did a, the first application to round up a little bit earlier, you know, maybe I could have salvaged it or <laughs> there's so much, so much that goes into trying to figure out where you went wrong. But, you know, I know, it, I know it's not your numbers. I've been planting the same variety of beans for the past five years. You know, this time of year, I'm usually considering whether or not I need to mow shooting lanes <laughs> in front of my stands in the soybeans because they're so tall. I can't see the, the deer out at them. You know, this isn't a problem I'm used to. It's it's not pressure related. So moving forward, it's like, okay, you're in a bit of a predicament, especially where I showed up. I'll kind of walk you through. So I showed up at my farm the weeds, I hadn't been there in a couple months because I've been traveling so much for work and the weeds were just out of hand. They were out of belly button high. There's a lot of goose grass. I've never noticed goose grass coming in in my fields as being like a, a dominant weed. A um, couple of them, goose grass was dominating. There's some pigweed coming up in there and it was just completely getting taken over. But it puts you in a weird spot because a lot of areas, you know, if I would have just went in and sprayed Roundup over that goosegrass, I'm not convinced. It was so thick that I wouldn't get a good kill. It would take multiple treatments. So what I elected to do was get in there, put the brush hog on high and clip the top off. So the same way you would go into like a clover field and try to trim those those weeds down, try to clip the top off. I was doing the same thing. I was hoping, A, if there are any soybeans in there that I can't see, I want to make sure that I'm not terminating them. So I wanted to mow high enough that I can get over that first node of the or nodule of the, the soybean plant. Um, the other issue you got to think about is once you mow it, if you're going to go in and do an, an herbicide application in, in, the, in the near future, there needs to be enough of that plant still exposed to that or that Roundup will take. So you can't mow it too low where there, there's you, the Roundup won't take, but if you mow it too high, then you're dealing with, you might not get good coverage on it. So I did the best I could. I mowed it down and, and sprayed. I understand there's going to be a little thatch. I will have to do a second uh, application of, of herbicide closer to fall planting. But at, at the end of the day, it's like I'm I'm hoping that the one field that might be salvageable, those soybeans bounce back, and I'm, I might just top sow it with with some cereal grain, just something cheap to get something on the ground because those beans are not looking like they should be looking. There's plenty of open real estate out there. So I just want something that's affordable, that's going to hold that soil in place. It's going to be somewhat palatable. So for that field where I do have a little bit of beans and I'm holding out hope on it, that there might be <laughs> might be some standing beans late in the year, I don't want to disrupt those plants. I'm not going to till that field. But the other two, I'm completely hitting the reset button. Um, I don't have much of a choice. I have I have some people coming out to, to hunt my farm this fall. And I, I just want a pretty pretty looking food plot in front of them when they get out there. So I wasn't willing to, to sit around and hope that the soybeans are, are going to take in this two other fields. I have to, had to get aggressive and, and go into it knowing, okay, <clears throat> I'm not going to have a standing bean crop this year. What's going to be the next best move moving forward? Um, so in this case, I'm trying to mitigate the situation, which is the weeds I'm dealing with now, and then get it planted. And then next year, you know, it might have to be incorporate a, uh, pre-emergent herbicide, you know, something I haven't had to do in the past, but you know, maybe those, maybe those beans need a little bit of help to become established if, if conditions get rough like they did this year. No. And then I'm looking at as far as, you know, what to plant. And I had already sunk all this money into the soybeans. So um, I'm like, I, I don't want to fork out a, a bunch of money for another premium, you know, deer crop to plant out there. And I'm, I'm so you know, thinking of, of what I, I want to put in the ground, it, this might be a good opportunity for me to kind of, you know, ex like I said earlier, experiment a little bit, you know, put some cereal grain side by side, but doing a straight planting of, of brassicas instead of incorporating them into the mix. You know, there, there's some different things that I've been wanting to do in my place uh, that I've been kind of <laughs> not able to do because my warm season food plots have always 
consumed so much of my tillable acreage. Well, you know, here's a chance for me to kind of rewrite the script this year. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I mean, a good cereal grain, it's hard to beat the, the cost per, you know, the cost per acre or cost per effort for, for, for that, you know, if you have to have to replace a failed crop. So. Well, and you think of the sheer tonnage that, that you're getting out of a, a winter wheat. Like if you can find an on-list variety of winter wheat, go go with that. Bob oats are fine if you're if you're far enough south. You know, you get much further north than Nashville. I I I hesitate with oats in the upper Midwest and stuff like that. And the cold tolerance just isn't as great. But yeah, cereal grains are great. I've I've been talking about toying with the idea of expanding some of my perennial clover plots. You know, maybe this is the opportunity I've been waiting for. Do just a clover and, and cereal grain, very basic blend, and then and then leave the areas that I want to maintain as a perennial plot and kind of replant the rest of them next spring. Try soybeans again moving forward. But there's there's a lot of different options out there and you know, when, when you're thinking about what you want to do with those, with those fall food plots, it's, it's, where's the lowest hole on your, on your, on your calendar in your bucket, your, your habitat bucket, you know, is, is winter nutrition, the, the limiting resource on, on your farm? Is it, you know, is it early spring green up? Is that your low spot on the calendar? Um, figuring out the low spot on your management calendar and in, uh, kind of going from there as far as your your game plan on what to plant um for your fall blend is 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 super important you know if if i need if i need late season food on the ground it's it's hard to beat those those brassicas um just straight planting you get plenty of forage that early bow season when it comes up and then you got another candy crop late in the year uh the problem is once it's gone it's gone <laughs> you gotta feel the dirt so kind of maintaining that balancing act of, of knowing how many acres you need to plant, you know, do you need to incorporate some form of cereal grain to kind of give them an alternative option once those, once those brassicas are gone, it's um, kind of knowing your deer herd and kind of what those numbers are and kind of basing your, what you're planting off of uh, how many mouths you have to feed. Yeah. Have you, have you witnessed or had, had any issues with, with deer, you know, initially kind of not, not feeding in your brassicas. Yeah. My, yeah. my farm. Exact, so my farm in Kentucky, I've been planting brassicas for, since we've had the farm. It wasn't until last winter that I saw them eat a turnip, like actually bust open and eat a, a turnip. <laughs> I don't know why. I don't know what the deal was. You know, I went out there, I tried stomping on them, making it as easy as possible for them. They look great year after year. Never touched them last season. I showed up in January to my farm and I think the last time I'd been there was sometime in December. Was, those turnips were all over my field laying on top. They, you know, nothing touched them. Come back a month later, January, it looked like a bomb went off. <laughs> like there was, there's pieces of turnip everywhere. And I don't know what happened between the five years previous and, and this past year. But it, I, th- I just think it takes time. You know, I won't be surprised if I have a problem getting them to establish if I plant the same, you know, small acreage in it that I did last year. Just they, they hit it that hard at the end of the season last year. So, yeah, I have seen it. And I, I do. I, I, I think it's just an exposure thing for those deer. If they're not used to it and they don't need to try something new, they probably won't. Gotcha. And you, you touched on something there that, yeah, I think, I think is important. You, you said it wasn't, wasn't an issue there on your property, but, uh, you know, if, for somebody that is experiencing food plot failure, definitely consider the deer density issue like you, you touched on because <clears throat> I've seen that before. It's, it's one of the reasons, you know, I always recommend that people put a, some type of browse exclosure or exclusion mm-hmm. cage, whatever you want to call it on a, on a food plot. Cause I've, I've had some where, you know, I planted it and then came back a while later and, and you're looking at it and you're like, man, it, this thing just didn't take, you know, I wonder was the seed not good or, you yeah. know, you're, you're thinking through all these issues and you walk over to the, the browse exclosure cage and, uh, Poor, you know, it's, it's knee high. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you, you know, you realize, Oh, it, it, it did come up. The deer just keeping it ate down to the dirt. So. Um, yeah, well, and just, that's a, that's a big thing is I don't know what it is about landowners, like not wanting to admit when they have too many deer and it's, 
I, I, I think part of it boils down to, you know, it's just fun sitting down and seeing 30 beer in a set. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> like, you're constantly busy. But at, at the end of the day, it's like, man, you know, every single one of those does out there is eating how many couple thousand pounds of <laughs> forage every year. And they're all popping out fawns and they're going to contribute. And at the end of the day, it's like you got to think, are you are you managing your deer herd for the thrill of numbers or are you trying to grow trophies out there? And I, I, I wish like the quickest way or I think the, the easiest way to promote better quality deer on your property and in, in most instances. And I feel I, I need to, you know, put this in uh, parentheses or, or put an asterisk next to it. But in most instances, the easiest thing any landowner can do to promote the quality of deer they're hunting in their area is start shooting more antlerless deer, you know, without fail. Chances are most, most places you go, deer densities are, are on, I would say on the higher end of the spectrum where I would like to see them. Um, you start adding in the fact that you're doing all these, you know, timber stand improvements you're making. And maybe you did a, a shelter wood cut last year on 40 acres. So there's a lot of fresh browse on the ground. You started planting these uh, soybeans in an area that might not have soybeans around. You got all these logging roads planted in, in clover, whatever. You start putting all of these elements on the landscape that are contributing to the recruitment of those deer. So you're having better fawn survival. You're having, you know, more twins born. You're doing everything you can to make these deer as healthy and robust as pop as, as possible, but you're forgetting the part where <laughs> you got to remove some of the excess in order to maintain that herd size. I think people start doing all these improvements on the landscape and kind of lose sight of the fact that oftentimes if your improvements are working, you know, that deer herd is, is climbing right along with the productivity of the land. So keeping your deer herd below carrying capacity is going to alleviate a lot of these issues people are having with their, with their food plots establishing, or, you know, we were talking earlier about native plant communities and getting those established. One of my favorite reasons for planting, you know, one of my favorite management techniques in general is doing some type of old field or early successional habitat or CRP or whatever, grasslands, shrubland, you know, early successional habitat surrounded by a band of perennial clover. And, you know, the clover is great as a fire break. It's, it's already there. It's ready to go. It's, you know, on command, as soon as conditions are right, you can burn. But the other benefit of it is I'm looking at these blends and all the money people are, are pumping into getting these, these, warm season grasses and pollinator plots established. And then the deer are just eating them all, you know, they're getting in there and they're like, Oh, I like black eyed Susans. Oh, I like showy trefoil. I like partridge pea. And they're eating all the good stuff out of these pollinator plantings. When you can alleviate a lot of that browsing pressure simply by putting the, putting a, a clover strip around the perimeter of it, you know, yeah, yeah. it's probably also going to alleviate some pressure on, on the browsing of your seedlings and the adjacent woodlots, you know, there's, there's, there's multiple layers to, to deer management and doing little things can add up big time over, over the, the scope of a property. Yeah, absolutely. So what would you say, I guess, to the guy we talked about these summer food plot plantings that, that have failed, but what would you say to the guy that has hopes of, of planting a fall food plot here soon? And, you know, we're still, if we're still looking at this, these hot, dry conditions at that time, what, what uh, what steps they need to take, or or maybe just pull the plug on the whole idea, or <laughs> just sell the property. No. So if if you're hesitant, and what I've been noticing, and this is completely anecdotal, but it it seems like our seasons are kind of shifting later and later in the year. Like we're getting warm, dry weather heading into fall more often than not. I feel like, and maybe that's just recency bias over the last five years or so, but. You know, just paying, being hyper vigilant to those, uh, those rain events and paying super close attention to it for, for getting those plots established. A lot of those smaller seeds, you know, they don't need quite as much to germinate and get established as, you know, like a corn. They don't need quite the substantial rain event. You know, you're planting them an eighth of an inch under the surface. They don't need much. In some areas, like where I'm at in Kentucky, I'm right on the Cumberland River. I get a nice layer of dew in the morning from fog rolling off that cold river. Stuff like that, you know, it's probably enough to get it germinated. But just being vigilant, if you're if you're hesitant and money is tight, just stick into cereal grains. You know, if, if you get a cereal rye 
and you just want to do layered rye on a food plot, it's hard to beat productivity as far as tonnage goes and cost efficiency of doing a layered rye food plot. You're not going to, you know, whether that, that food plot on, say you're only doing one food plot on your property in the fall, whether that's a diverse, robust fall blend of brassicas and Austrian winter peas and five different clovers and two different cereal grains, or if it's just a straight stand of, of cereal rye, you're not going to notice one difference to the next as far as deer usage of that area, assuming you're the only food plot around. You know, The deer are going to go to that food source regardless of what you put in the ground. So, so don't overthink it. But what I will say about these, these blends, and especially the diverse blends for, for the fall, I always push as often as possible for planting a robust fall blend simply because it kind of protects you. It shelters you a little bit from you're dealing with small, tiny little seeds. They're easy to plant too deep. Like I said earlier, the, the, the rain events and, and the temperatures in, in the late summer, early fall have been very unpredictable lately. So by planting a, a blend with, with a litany of, you know, 10 different species in it, you're kind of giving yourself a little safety net there where if part of the field got planted too deep, you know, maybe some of those seeds won't germinate properly, but other, the cereal grains might, or you might hit a dry condition where, you know, the, the brassicas got a big long tap root going down there. They might be okay, you know, going through a, a, a dry period where, where some of the clovers might, <laughs> might get a little shock when they're trying to establish just doing blends. I, w- I would say I would, <sighs> Diversity is definitely the the landowner's best friend as far as uh, mitigating, and I, and I'm talking strictly using traditional, you know, traditional tilling the ground, planting, spreading fertilizer. If you got a drill, by all means, use it. <laughs> They're great, especially for planting into standing vegetation. But for these guys getting out there and doing it, doing it broadcasting by hand, or maybe they got a, a small implement for their, their four wheeler, you know, just, just be diligent. Don't plant your seeds too deep. Don't overseed. Um, but especially just pay attention to those rain events and as best you can time that planting over a substantial rain event. Like I said, if, 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 if cost is your, your biggest hindrance, I'd stick to the cereal grains, maybe a clover or two in there, crimson clover or something to add a legume into the mix. But if, if you got a little more freedom, uh, financially, I'd, I'd say, go, go to your local ag store. Ask if they have any blends around, you know, if you get, if you can get your ag store to put together a bag of Bob Oats, field turnips and winter peas, I'm sure they could do it relatively cheap <laughs> and you can get something on the ground. That's going to provide a ton of good food. You know, you, you don't have to go out and get the, get the blockbuster, uh, you know, 25 different, species that'd be great I'd, I'd, I'd like if i see everybody could afford to go out and do that kind of stuff but just just don't overthink it um and try to give yourself that safety net if you can as far as planting a couple different varieties of species you mean i don't have to plant something with a big buck on the bag <laughs> i hate to tell you this but, oh, but, but no that, crazy <laughs> that makes that makes me think though the whole the food plot failure thing. I remember when I f- first moved down here to Georgia, uh, took a position on a wildlife management area and it uh, came time to plant the dove fields. I was planting um, sunflowers. And, you know, mm-hmm. of course, first season here, I wanted to make sure I had a nice, impressive dove field for the for the hunters and, you know, planted, planted my sunflowers within 24 hours, had a real nice rain event. I was like, yeah, this is this is perfect. They started germinating and then they uh, got up maybe 10 inches or so tall and the rain just stopped <laughs> and, mm-hmm. yep. and the, the, the sunflowers just stopped. And then uh, to add insult to injury, it wasn't long after that, the deer came out and, you know, ate every one of them. <laughs> finished them off. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> finished them off. So, uh, yeah, I had a food pot failure myself to deal with there. and I think I came back and, and planted uh, some millet or something. But, yeah, it was... Uh, did not turn out the way I'd hoped. Uh, it, it it happens, and that's that's oh yeah. part of the. I'm I'm super excited. So, uh, Bronson Strickland and and um, one of his grad students are are working on a on a project here, studying the long term, you know, cost benefit analysis of some of these regenerative practices. And uh, I I tell you what, I'm chopping at the bit <laughs> to to see some of the results of these things and. Yeah. Uh, 
it's one of those things where like, yeah, I'm looking at like what happened with me and my soybeans. And if I had some sort of regenerative program in place where I was planting into a thatch layer and I had a drill, it's like, yeah, probably. I bet that came up fine. But like I, like I hinted to or, or towards earlier, it's like, unless I can get access to a drill and there is access to no-till drills. A lot of people don't realize you can go to your county extension or your soil and water conservation or you can go to NRCS and you can ask around and chances are there will be a drill somewhere around your property you can get access to. And I've used those drills plenty of times. Kentucky's great. They got a couple of them yeah, yeah. that they lend out, but I just don't like being at the mercy of somebody else getting it to me on time or right, having yeah. to plant by a certain date. And it's, it's not feasible. So for everybody to have one, but so until those start getting subsidized and more and more people can do it, I I think we got to look at, you know, what we're doing, what we have been doing, and let's just do the best we can. There's nothing wrong. Absolutely nothing wrong. I do. Like I said, I do it myself. I plant traditionally. I I till my fields, but, but I'm smart about it. You know, I've put in buffer strips in place where I have erosion issues. That's where I was pulling all that Johnson grass by hand the other day was in a buffer strip along a tree line that feeds down into a low spot in the field where we have erosion issues. You know, I, I can go in and I can, I can spray my field out and kill it in the end of July and not have to worry too much about erosion issues because I have those buffer strips in place. You know, it kind of gives me a little more freedom as a land manager by doing that kind of stuff. One, one last thing before we kind of wrap things up here and, and again, going back to the, the heat and the, and the dry weather, uh, do you ever recommend installing water holes, uh, whether that be, you know, natural or, or some type of, of artificial water hole for, for deer? Yeah. So water holes I have, I've, I've installed one on my place. I haven't had great success. The, the coolest thing I had was a, a bear sitting in it on one of my trail cam pictures. And I have so much, I have creeks running through my property that I always have water in them. And it's just, I don't think I'm in a spot that a deer is really going to go too far out of his way to take advantage of it when he can walk a little ways and get some running water. Um, I'm not sure. I, I do recommend them. I have had clients had great success with them. For instance, if you can add it to a situation that's going to sweeten the pot. So let's say you have a, a, your favorite stand of white oaks. And like, that's where you go every, you know, every five years you get a bumper crop year of of white oaks, you know, exactly where you're going to go. Um, early season, consider an area like that. You know, if it's just digging a little, putting a little cattle trough in the ground and a piece of uh, corrugated roofing, you know, funneling water down into it to keep it full by all means doing something like that. It's never going to hurt you to add something like that. Now, I will say I, in areas like Ohio, especially the last couple of years, has been getting absolutely pummeled by uh, Blue Tongue and EHD. It's like you do have to be cognizant of that kind of stuff. If you are going to go in and, and, and do some sort of water source like that, are you actually going to be harming the deer more than hurting them um, by adding a, a location for those those gnats and stuff to congregate? So it, it is all regional, but... I don't think, I don't think there's anything wrong with getting in there and adding a water source. I, when I do recommend them, it's usually for specific stands that I have designated for early season. Outside of that, um, if it is a property that, that I do think there's waters and limiting factor, um, by all means, I would incorporate more and more of those, but chances are most, most properties I work on water is water is not a limiting resource on the, on the landscape. Right. Yep. Yeah, definitely. Definitely not an issue where I'm at down here. There's not too many places you can't throw a rock and, <laughs> and hit a water source somewhere. Yeah. So, but, but I wanted to ask, I know, you know, it's obviously an issue and, and <clears throat> some areas much more than, than others. So, and that, that certainly makes sense, you know, put it, putting one in an area where the deer are already being attracted to and just, just making it, you know, that, that much more attractive. So. Yeah. yeah. If you can find a spot on like an edge feather or something that you have a stand nearby where you can kind of keep it in the shade where it's not going to, all the water is going to evaporate. Like, like I said, I, I look at it more as uh sweetening the pot than it is an actual um, life-saving uh, device out there in the landscape. Yeah. yeah. Well, Zach, any, anything else that we've missed that you wanted to cover as far as I guess uh, hot, hot weather deer management? <laughs> 
Yeah. So um, I mentioned earlier about having uh, the uh, the local ag cooperative or whoever mixing up a, a fall blend for you. The one thing I do want to recommend is do not overseed those brassicas if you're incorporating them into your clovers. Um, it's a common mistake. And I see it even in manufactured seed blends where it'll be very high and in, in, in brassica content. And by the time you get those planted and in the ground, they're just such vigorous. <clears throat> Excuse me. They're so vigorous in their germination and leafing out that they can actually smother a, st- a stand before anything else gets to establish. So that's my only cautionary tale. If you do want to incorporate some type of brassicas or turnips on in your blend, um, consider do it lightly or consider doing um, an actual separate planting of, of just those those greens. Yeah. Because we don't need a second failure in a row, right? <laughs> no, no. One, one failure per season is enough. Oh. Well, Zach, man, I appreciate you taking time out again to to talk to us today about, you know, summer thermal cover and, and recovering from food plot failure. Uh, for the folks who would like to keep up with what you're doing online or maybe who would like to reach out and for a, uh, you know, a habitat consultation, uh, what's what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, so my website is whetstonehabitat.com. That's W-H-E-T-S-T-O-N-E.com. Um, if you're interested in having me out to your property, you can go ahead and fill out a form submission on there and tell me a little bit about, about the property. Um, you can follow me. My Instagram's uh, at whetstonehabitat. My YouTube channel is at whetstonehabitat. That's whetstone with an H. Um, and I would encourage anybody listening, if you're a fan of what you heard or if you read any of my articles uh, through NDA, uh, please uh, subscribe to my newsletter. There's going to be a lot more content coming in on that newsletter. I think I was heartbroken the other day when I received the email that this fall issue of Quality Whitetails is going to be the last one going to print. So I would expect um, a lot more of the content that I put out there is going to be going direct um, into my newsletter. So if if people are interested, um, that's a good place to keep up with what's going on with what's on Habitat. Good yeah. place to contact me. Yeah, yep, absolutely. And hey, we, we're still one thing we're letting folks know is is you know all the all the great content that that used to be in, in QW. We're we're still going to be writing that or paying others to write yeah. that. It's just gonna it's gonna live on our website now for everybody to have access to, rather than you know in the magazine. So. We're, yeah, we're not we're not going to slack off on the on the content for sure. Good because I I still got plenty to say. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely, man. And and I'll be sure to include links to uh, all your stuff there in our show notes as well, so folks can check out your website and YouTube channel and uh, yeah, get get subscribed to that newsletter. Awesome, I appreciate that. Thank you so much for having me on, and uh, condolences to anyone else out there dealing with this food plot, dealing with the food plot failure. Hang in there. Like I said, I, I I just had a change in perspective where I went from being down on myself to uh, looking at it as an opportunity to kind of mess with my my management regime on, on my own farm. So just just change your mindset. Stay positive. Stay, stay, uh, stay safe out there and uh, enjoy these last few weeks of summer we got left. Before we know it, we'll be sitting in a tree stand. That's right. And I can't wait for that. In in cooler weather, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, I got a um, Kentucky opener uh, September second, and then uh, I head out to Montana for my first elk hunt right after that. Oh, so nice! I got an exciting fall plan. I'm I'm looking forward to it. Absolutely, yep. Elk, uh, uh, Western elk hunt is definitely uh, on my bucket list. So, yeah, that'll that'll be I'll, cool. I'm gonna have to come back and uh, come back and tell you how that went. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right, Brian. Well, I appreciate you. Thanks again for having me on. It's been fantastic. And like I said, if, if anybody has any questions about anything that we covered, I'm, I'm very approachable and always, always try to stay on top of my emails and, and checking all my socials. So if anybody has any questions, I'll, I'll be there to answer. Well, good deal, Zach. We, uh, we appreciate it. All right. Have a good one. All right, guys, that wraps up our interview with Zach Vakirovich. Uh, Thanks so much for checking out this episode of the Deer Season 365 podcast. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the show. You know, you can find us on all the popular podcasting platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and and several more. So about anywhere you could listen to to podcasts, you should be able to find us there. Uh, Or you can just go to DeerAssociation.com slash podcast and subscribe directly from our website. 
Uh, hey, we'd also love it if you take just a second to leave us a five-star rating or a written review. You know, those both help us uh, climb the, the podcasting charts and be more visible to, uh, to future listeners. So we would appreciate any support you could give us there. For more information about the National Deer Association, you can visit our website, again, at deerassociation.com. From there, you can sign up for our free weekly newsletter. And, uh, hey, just enjoy some of our several hundred articles of, of free content right there on our website, covering everything from hunting strategy to food plots, habitat improvement, um, deer management, you name it. Uh, if it's deer hunting or deer management related, we got some good content right there on our website available to you. So check that out. And, of course, you can always find us on all the popular social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Deer Association. So again, thanks for listening to the Deer Season 365 podcast, the podcast where deer season never ends.